is Dylan C. And welcome to the Night Reader Podcast, episode 17. Thank you so much for being here, stopping by the keep, and sticking around. It means so much to me. I hope you can feel my passion. This this is very close to my heart and important to me. And uh, my goal with this podcast is to inspire many. So please, if you're starting out here, there's so much wonderful content that I put out prior episodes. I've got heartfelt poetry, awesome interviews, odes to old authors, and so much more. I know y'all know where my heart is with all of this, and we're getting back on track with the episodes here, so I hope you have been tuning into my short lives every evening on Facebook and Instagram, where I read children's books with you guys and um, answer questions and stuff like that. I'm producing a new sister podcast to this one. It's called Night Writers. It's a podcast for the little ones, and by the little ones. I mean the children and youth of our world. As I bring classic novels to life here on Night Reader, I'll be bringing to life stories and poems written by children. It's going to be so much fun, and I'm very excited about it. Night Reader will continue as always. We all have children in our lives, whether directly or indirect, and working with kids has been one of the most rewarding things I've ever done. I have children of my own, and I spent a lot of time volunteering with preschool-aged children. And while doing that, I developed a small program where I specialized in emotional growth and expression through music and art. I had the chance to work with a group of kids for about a year and teaching them all about instruments and emotions. Um, It was really incredible. I also had the opportunity to work with grade school children in San Francisco, educating them on maritime history and the history of San Francisco during the earthquake, teaching them life lessons and leadership and so much more which was an incredible coincidence since I started Moby Dick last year. And I actually got to kind of live it out as a character. And one of my characters was Stubb. So it was a lot of fun. Um, And while doing that, you know, I saw kids crack and cry under pressure. I saw kids get seasick on the great vessels. I heard them get up in the middle of the night to comfort one another. I saw modest and shy children become strong leaders through the program. There's something so special about children and their innocence in this world. And their vision of life and fun is so unpolluted. I want to continue my work with children. And this is an avenue for me to do that. Whether you have kids of your own, nephews, cousins, friends with children, please tell them about my podcast and where you can find me and how to get into contact with me. You can submit a child's story or poem with a name and age. I will write music and speak the piece aloud with sound effects and so much more for the world to hear. How awesome for a child, right? So please, help this project come to life. I have another project as well. It's going to be the first book I ever publish, and it's going to be kickstarted and crowdfunded. I'm working with many artists, and I'll be announcing officially very soon where you can help me bring that to life. The book will be called Ever Wondrous a collection of art and poetry. I'm really, really excited for y'all to to get in more details about it.
might I take a moment for some special and important thank yous. Firstly, a long-awaited shout-out. Thank you to a fantastic literature podcast called Get Lit. I'll be featuring them in an upcoming episode. I also have a listener named Alicia. She claims to be my biggest fan. Well, thank you so much, Alicia, for being here and supporting me. Your insight and recommendations have been wonderful, and I wish you the absolute best as an honorary night reader. You've inspired me greatly. I need to thank also Liam Mayclam, the foodie chef of San Francisco, who inspired me to do the lives every evening. Thank you to each and every one of my patrons, supporters, and followers on all platforms. Just following me, just listening to my voice at all, it means the world to me. Thank you, Nancy, Roz, Gypsy, Karima, Brian, Debbie, Ellie, Camille, and many more. Well, in today's episode, we'll be moving forward with the wonderful and touching novel, Moby Dick, by the great Herman Melville. I adore this book, as you guys know, and I made a collection of it. I've got copies, posters, books, knickknacks. It's an adventure of mine to bring this entire novel to life until the very last line, and Ishmael is my main squeeze. As I've said before, I find him extremely relatable. I feel him a brother or a close friend. My personal belief is that Ishmael is an accurate depiction of Herman Melville himself. This novel has so many majestic and heart-wrenching passages. Passages of glorious and picturesque landscapes of the mind, deep humanity and emotion, highly intellectual thoughts, and so forth. Every time I read this book, I'm touched so deeply by the profound poetry Herman Melville has penned. It's so relatable. And hidden within the confines of sometimes difficult text is a wonderful and touching story of finding yourself, destiny, tragedy, life lessons, friendships, hardships, life on the sea, and much, much more. If you've ever had difficulty with this book, or question its merit, or harbor any hard feelings for it, I implore you to please let those go. Follow my heavy step into the keep, where I have a candle lit on the round table, high above ground level in the shrouded night, where I read and ponder alone. Let's dive back in, and welcome to the keep. Last episode was fantastic, and it was so much fun. A huge scene was brought to life. The sailors on the forecastle at midnight, after Ahab had bedded the crew. They all banter with one another until a storm hits, and we heard a terrifying dialogue from young Pip. We jumped into Ahab's head and learned more about the crew. At this point in the story, we know where we're heading, and we have a solid idea of the plot. We've been through so much together. Today we read chapter 41, the title chapter, Moby Dick, and we jump back into Ishmael's head. We also get to hear about Captain Ahab's original run-in with the white whale. Very exciting. So, let's listen to some of Ishmael's inner dialogue.
It is I, Ishmael. I will admit I was one of the crew. My shouts had gone up with the rest, and the stronger I shouted, the more Ahab's quenchless feud seemed my own. My oath had been welded. I was full of a wild and mystical feeling regarding this adventure. This whale, well, as the days moved on, my ears became greedy, and I listened intently of the history of the murderous monster we had sworn our oath against. Ishmael is telling us about his reaction to the prior scenes. He indeed was along for the ride, though many things felt off in his soul. Ahab's desire to find the whale has made its way into the hearts of every man aboard the Pequod. He now recollects for us all he and the crew know of this great white whale, Moby Dick. For some time this whale has haunted the seas of the world. A decent amount of sailors had heard of him, even less had seen him with their own eyes, and even fewer had faced that specific whale in battle. With such a large number of whaling vessels about the gigantic world, it was quite rare, nigh impossible, to come across the same whale twice. But here and there, there had been accounts of sailors encountering a specifically ferocious whale of an uncommon size and demeanor, giving the sailors and vessel much trouble before escaping them entirely. Ishmael believes this whale in question was definitely Moby Dick. He also tells us the story of Ahab and the whale, one that was pretty common among whale ships of the world. He also tells us of the story of Ahab and the whale. The story was pretty common among whale ships of the world. Not well known, but common. The white whale had made a sort of name for himself, of being terribly violent. There had been sailors prior who lowered for him valiantly, and many of these stories end in broken bones and boats missing arms and legs, fatalities. And when these terrible stories were told, he became an omen, an urban legend amongst the wailing world. Ishmael tells us that naturally, fabulous rumors grow from surprising events such as these. How true that is. Rumors will be ever-present as long as there are enough reality for them to cling to. It is also known that amongst sailors of all sorts, superstitions ran rabid. There are a few confusing lines here. What Ishmael is saying is that people and sailors are already influenced by their imaginations and rumors. But put someone at sea, passing a thousand miles and a thousand shores, with nothing but your mind and the rumors you have heard to play with. It often enlarged a man's imagination, whether that is for better or for not. I'd like to briefly mention and look back to the first two episodes of Night Reader. You remember all the terribly ominous signs that Ishmael saw before his journey began? The painting? The name of the inn? The shadows and the early morning mist? It came to be that through these rumors and legends and encounters and an imagination, the name of Moby Dick struck terror in all the sailors. And the whale's rumors often involved supernatural and otherworldly tidbits. Nobody wanted to face the terrible whale, Moby Dick. Ishmael tells us that no one is willing to give chase to the whale. 
There are even men who refuse to hunt that specific type of whale, a sperm whale, as they are known, or they were known for their general ferocity. But there are also sailors that have never laid eyes on the true form of a whale, and these sailors, with childlike interest in their eyes, will listen to the legends and stories of the great whale. Ishmael decides to talk a little history with us. All right. So the sperm whale, one of the largest and most violent when provoked, at least during these times. In the modern day and age, these whales are no longer hunted illegally. In our modern day and age, these whales are no longer hunted legally. And so they don't seem to have to defend themselves against humans. But Ishmael takes us far back. He's done his research. He speaks of old naturalists and researchers of the sea who believe that these types of whales were actually a thirst for human blood, which is ridiculous. But this was long before even the book Moby Dick was written. In the early days of the then modern whale fishery, right whales were the only ones hunted. When they began hunting sperm whales, due to the old legends, many men flat out refused, believing you would have to have a death wish to lower for a sperm whale of any sort. And there were those men who, even knowing all of these things, were still willing to give chase to Moby Dick. And there were those who were vague to all of these concepts, having never heard of the dangerous whale, or Moby Dick, who would blindly lower for him in their gallantry. There were some crazy superstitions said of the whale. Keep in mind the time this was written. Some believed the same whale to be two places at once, encountered at opposite latitudes at one and the same time. Ishmael says that the ways of the deep and the ways of whales as a whole are an absolute mystery to mankind. For all we know, the whale could have some otherworldly path or tunnels in the trenches, allowing him to cross the great seas with ease. In an early episode, I mentioned that Ishmael had heard stories of whales being darted in the northern seas, but escaping, and merely two days later captured in the complete opposite side of the globe as they pulled darts from the whale's body, the people recognized the darts of southern whalers. This has been recorded in history books. It's also known that passages that proved difficult for man and vessel were simply a breeze for the whale of the ocean. It was his home. There were also great myths of the Atlantises and fountains that were said to spray holy water carried there from the sea through underwater passages. These incredible stories were almost equaled by the realities of the whalemen. Such sights and amazements had met their eyes and ears. And in this time, what was there to debunk magic? Who was there to pull back the smokescreen and force logic into your head through the use of science and studies? It is so highly interesting to me, this gap in history. And I find it important to try our best to place ourselves in this time period without any modern tones muddling up our vision. Some claim the whale to be immortal. It was relatively rare for a whale injured as badly as it had been to escape, and not to mention through multiple battles. They say the whale is scarred all over, with twisted iron still sticking out of him here and there. As Queequeg described it, like a corkscrew, his jaw was crooked and wrenched, and his brow drooped low. Some sailors believed that no harm could be done to him. Some sailors believed the whale to be invincible, its spouting blood but an illusion. 
Moby Dick was said to be much larger than even the largest of sperm whales. We will learn more of their exact size later. He also had a high and pyramid-shaped hump and a snow-white forehead. Sure, the sight and thought of him was terrible indeed, but scarier even was the words and stories said of this whale's specific intelligence. The stories said that when in alarm and flight, this whale was violent in every manner, and had even been said to sometimes turn right around and bear down upon the ships, sometimes breaking them in two and sinking them. Whether this is true or not, I have put a lot of thought into this and even talked with some of the modern whale watchers in San Francisco. Whales are believed to be gentle creatures, at least these days. But we know they are incredibly intelligent, and there is so much mystery to them, even with modern-day technology and studies. These whales are great and powerful. They know how to use their tail, or flukes as they are called, to slap the water. Could they have adapted in these times to learn to defend themselves? They absolutely could have. It's very viable, especially with how very frequently they were hunted in these days. Danger and disaster were always a part of the whale fishery, no matter what kind of fish you were dealing with. So it's a lot of stuff to think about, you know? As we move forward, I'm going to bring to life for you a fantastic scene, and one you've been waiting for. We get to see and hear about Ahab's run-in with the great white whale, Moby Dick. On a frightful night, they lowered and were giving chase to the white whale. When an attempt to escape its lines, the whale dashed itself against the three smaller boats and destroyed them. One man, a captain, swam to the surface amongst the sinking limbs of his torn comrades with oars swirling in the eddies. He seized the line knife from the broken boat. And as Moby Dick floated and glided amongst the wreckage, a younger and enraged Captain Ahab swam and dashed at the great whale, blindly seeking with a six-inch blade to reach the fathom deep life of the whale. Just then the whale lowered his great sickle-shaped jaw beneath him and reaped away Ahab's leg as a mower would a blade of grass in the field. No evil man could have struck him with such malicious intent as this. And so, Ahab cherished within him a deep hatred and violence towards this creature. Everything regarding the whale was a frantic, ugly morbidness in the mind of him, in his soul and spirit. That white whale was the incarnation, the personification, of all these terrible things we harbor inside. These things that some people feel eating away at them till the day they die. The wild viciousness of spiritual exasperations. And so, Ahab had his demons as we all do. You all heard him say it. That whale is everything and nothing all at once. It's all his demons brought to life. Do you know how crazy this sounds? After the accident, he was nearly dead, bleeding constantly in a high state of fever, lucidness. And for many months, he lay broken and bleeding in a hammock. It was then when his torn body and gashed soul bled into each other, and so interfusing made him mad. 
suffering very greatly, he lay in fever and severe pain for many months on end. What would that do to a human brain? That's torture, man. In his hammock, he became a raging lunatic, and his shipmates were forced to tie him down to it. And in a straitjacket, he swung to the mad rockings of the gales. So significant and poetically beautiful. And it makes so much sense. We've seen this sort of thing happen with people who have been terribly injured in battle, or whatever it may be. We've seen people lose their minds, and it's terribly sad, and it's not their fault. We are victims of circumstance, and there are things too much for the human mind and spirit to carry. Some things ought to break. This is when you start to think of Ahab in a different way. Can you blame him? I mean, yes, of course you can. I read this and had to put my book down for a moment, just think about it. Such beauty in these words and such meaning. It truly takes time to process it. Well, there eventually came a time when the ship came into latitudes of warmer tropic weathers, and Ahab's monomania seemed to clear. And Ishmael says that though he seemed to be normal to his shipmates, and issue orders as he was supposed to. It was but a front. The terrible madness lurked in him still. But Ish assures us that human madness is a fickle and cunning thing. Now, might I stop here and read directly out of the book for you, something I don't normally do. I quote, This is much, yet... Ahab's larger, darker, deeper part remains unhinted, but vain to popularize profundities, and all truth is profound. Winding far down from within the very heart of his spiked Hotel de Cluny, where we here stand, however grand and wonderful, now quit it, and take your way, ye nobler, sadder souls, to those vast Roman halls of Termis where far beneath the fantastic towers of man's upper earth, his root of grandeur, his whole awful essence sits in a bearded state, an antique buried beneath antiquities, enthroned on torsos. So with a broken throne, the great gods mock that captive king. Unquote. I am constantly taken aback by Herman Melville's writings. As I've asked so many times on this show, how could he harbor within him such a vast amount of worldly knowledge, such a clear view of humanity and the human soul? Not only that, but the way our minds work and how all of our lives intertwine, 
human consciousness, and so much more. He has some deeper view that surely escapes us all, just as Ahab's whale escaped him. So, Ahab's insanity subsided into something more hidden. But he was insane nonetheless. He was just very, very good at covering it up. It seems that this is the voyage where it has all come to a head for him. We will see him battling himself, as we have seen in the prior episodes. And which side will win? Which side will lose? Yes, his madness has contracted deeper within, like a winding river that narrows and widens. This madness Ahab is in, it also flows narrow. Ahab had not lost his intelligence, nor his cunning. Not a bit. Now, in this odd paragraph, Ishmael uses a specific and kind of weird way of telling us of Ahab's mind and soul. He wants us to visualize it geographically and structurally. We hear Ishmael, or rather, Herman Melville, describe to us Ahab's soul and mental state. Using archaic connections of old Roman buildings and beliefs, he mentions the Hotel de Cluny. This is an old building in Paris that was built above ancient Roman baths. He tells us that the crew cannot live up above in the grand buildings, but rather far below in the ancient tombs where old Ahab sits like an old statue, acting as a pillar, metaphorically holding up the weight of mankind's worries all on his shoulders as the gods laugh at him. Herman calls him the Caryatid, which is an ancient supportive column most of the time had slaves carved into them, holding up the ceilings above. So here we see Herman using his wits and his knowledge of geography in ancient Roman histories. We are then told that Ahab knows of his badness, is skillful at hiding it. So much so that when he finally stepped ashore with his new ivory leg, nobody questioned his lunacy. He seemed a normal man, and the stories of his craziness in the hammock soon subsided once people spoke with him. Nobody questioned the deep anger in his brow that lasted until this very day here on the Pequod. Who wouldn't feel this way after being mutilated? In fact, people in the fishery assumed he'd be a better and even more ruthless captain. Ahab had stuck deep in him the fangs of this idea he had of killing that whale. And so Ishmael comes to the conclusion that, for certain, Captain Ahab with all of his terrible rage bottled up and locked inside, had definitely sailed upon this present voyage with one single intent, and we know what that is. It was all engrossing. Ahab is set on a supernatural revenge. Had his comrades ashore known his true intent, they surely would have never let him go on this journey. So here we are now, with old man chasing a whale around the world, chief of this crew, which is made up of, quote, Mongol renegades, castaways, and cannibals, unquote. We are reminded of Starbuck's virtues of a clear mind, Stubbs' qualities of indifference at sea, and Flask's feeling lesser compared to his mates. It seemed this crew was perfect, perfectly chosen by some evil fates to help Ahab on this terrible journey. And what evil magic possessed their souls? So much so that Ahab's hate became their own. Even Ishmael can feel it. 
and whatever that was that possessed them all. How this came to be, Ishmael tells us, to figure this out would be going deeper than even he could go into the mind. He's at a loss, truly. To end the chapter, Ishmael reminds us again that he's in tow, swept away on this journey. He uses a metaphor of a subterranean miner inside of us, digging every which way. And how can we know which way he tunnels or just the sound of his pick? The inward workings of the mind are a mystery to us, saying basically that our subconscious cannot so easily be broken down and, and looked at. What pushes and pulls us? What small boat in tow of a great large tug has any choice? It's going, no doubt. This is Ishmael. And still with all of this in his mind, when he thinks of that whale, he feels a terrible, terrible feeling deep within him that he refers to as the deadliest ill. That's going to wrap up episode 17 of the Night Raider podcast. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I do, and I really hope you love the music. I feel it's some of the best music I've recorded for the show. I'm going to be compiling all of the uh, tracks that I've had so far into a uh, little CD kind of album of sorts of um, uh, Moby Dick characters and stuff like that and other happenings. So it'll be really cool if you guys want to check that out in the future. Uh, it's just an idea for now. Um, but something you can help me out with is go to podcastmagazine.com or check out the show notes and check out my socials. I have it all over the place. Um, they're doing uh, top 50 podcasts by dads. So if you could help me out and um, go to that website and enter Night Reader for this show and Dylan C for the host as long uh, as well as your email and uh, your name uh, I'd be greatly greatly appreciated I would love to make that list and help me out a lot for exposure uh, and other things like that um, that's for the show here I hope you guys enjoy it like I said and I hope you guys um, find some inspiration in it and I hope you listen to my prior episodes as I have a lot of stuff I'm proud of I hope that you find your passion whatever it is I hope you do it to the best of your abilities and I hope you don't take any um, hold close any apprehensions of your art because um, it's beautiful no matter what all right guys so until next time this has been an episode of night reader My name's dylan c and it was hosted and produced by me dylan c so go on drop your swords pick up your pens and reading spectacles let us read on <laughs> <laughs>